Hello, my name is John Brink and we are podcasting on the brink from downtown Prince George, the capital of Northern BC, beautiful Northern British Columbia. The other part that I have always want to make sure that everybody understands, especially my friends down south, 80% of the GDP of the province of British Columbia comes from here, Northern British Columbia. So I always say, don't forget it, you know. So today I have a special guest uh, podcasting uh, with me. It's, he, he's an entrepreneur extraordinaire and, and a friend, and his name is Brian Fair. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. It's nice to be here. So you are, we have known each other for many, many years, maybe close to 35, 40 years. I don't 40 know. 40 for sure. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> maybe even longer. And... and you have a very interesting background, uh, you know, and as I said, entrepreneur extraordinaire. I'm not saying that to everybody, but it applies to you in particular, uh, you know, and we'll talk about that during the discussion. Maybe tell me a little bit about uh, you were born in Vanderhoof? Yeah, certainly when you say the political capital of Prince George, certainly you're of, of northern B.C., but the center of British Columbia is actually Vanderhoof, where I'm from. Therefore, the center of the world. Cool. Yeah. No <laughs> question about that. Man. But born and raised Vanderhoof, for sure. Yeah. And, and then uh, you started off, uh, you know, working in the mills now. You have, uh, your dad's name was Ike, was quite involved in the lumber industry, was building mills, and in fact, plateau the mill that is still in Vanderhoof now, went through a f variety of hands, ended up to be a Canfor mill, but a lot of that he built or designed. Yeah, certainly, Dad. Uh, um, when I was 12 years old, they started, they moved Plateau from downtown Vanderhoof out to Engen, 12 miles out of Vanderhoof, and yeah. my memories from 12 years old on was every weekend I was out there playing in the dirt, playing in the, the safety ponds, playing. And and when I was in grade 11, I left high school, and my dad didn't like that because I had an older brother and an older sister in, in university, and dad insisted that I become a tradesman then. So that the day that I left school, I went to work on night shift, and dad enrolled me in welding school. Yeah. So that was what happened. Dad and, was the manager of Plateau Mills and Vanderhoof. Yeah, and then you really became a, a tradesman person, you know, and uh, uh, doing uh, mechanical in particular, uh, yep. welding, designing, and, and building. Uh, your older brother's name is Dave, your dad's name is Ike, and then saying, Brian, Ike, and Dave, what does that mean? That means that bid, was bid. Yep. Yep. And, and bid was established in... 1982. 1982. Yep. And, and so you were quite involved then already in the Vanderhoof area in, partic in particular. And another thing that happened then during that period, the industry, and I call this program this one in particular, but we talk about other things too, but BC's forest industry in transition, well, it was in transition then as well. I think in all the time that I look back, I came here in 1965, it was then in transition, it never stopped from being in transition. Yep. Not even today, yep, for all that matter. Yep. But, but you became involved in, in one mill in particular that uh, kind of stands out is Bond Brothers. Yeah, so, so if you go back to, to my dad, 
got, getting here from the prairies in 1949, and he would tell me that in 1956 there was something like 190 or 200 mills in the Quinell Prince George Vanderhoof Burns Lake area. Today there's 12 or something, if that. and it's been a transition forever, right? Yeah. So, so I, we did. I had an awful lot to do from 1980 to today with technological change, and in um, we bought in. 1984, we bought the Bond Brothers sawmill, and we actually bought it off Jim Rustad. Yeah. Jim had bought the Rustads as a, he wanted the quota out on the lake on Kenny Dam. Yeah. And and so we bought it off him at an auction, and we applied for timber, and we had the timber rights in a section 16.1, the same as you were on. We small, were we small, started the small business sale. yeah we started the Central Interior Wood Processors Association. Yeah. And and guys like Francois Lake and. Uh, Lake Glendon Prince, and you know, there was a I bunch, used to be president. You of that. were part of that, and yeah. uh, Bile, P, uh, Peter Bile was part of that, yeah. And the Biles, and yeah, and the Zweers, and Zweers were part and, of it, and all those Joe Saressa. But I usually say we had five, 50 second day manufacturers in northern BC at that point. Yep. Yep. Today, we have less than three, yep. And yep. and I'd be surprised if there is two. Uh, you know, in, in, in a year or so, and they gradually disappearing altogether, you know, yep. so. Yeah, pertinency rules didn't help that at all. No, it didn't help that yeah. at all. Yeah. The other thing that didn't help it, uh, Brian, is that uh, uh, government, uh, you know, with all due respect to my friends of Kofi, I'm also a vice chair of Kofi, amazingly, at least still today, uh, that may change tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I have to give the car back and all the salary. No, I yeah. get nothing from them. I don't want nothing. You know, so, but in any event, the, uh, you know, so they were very skillful in, in acquiring capital, uh, you know, for finding markets in other places. Yeah. So they found in particular markets in China, you know, and, and that looked to be a very, very good thing, safe and except the people in China don't build houses like we do, yeah. as you know, and as yeah. I know. Yeah. So what do they then buy, uh, John? Uh, I say they buy low-grade lumber, they are bottom feeders. What happened to the low-grade? Well, the low-grade used to be remanufactured by second-day manufacturers. Yep. And that was another one that put the nail in the value-added sector in British Columbia. The other one that did it, uh, you know, and, and I feel very strongly about this, obviously, is that uh, uh, up to... Uh, as the Suffolk Lumber uh, Agreement with the United States, we were, I was involved on behalf of the BC Council Value-Added Processes in the negotiation. We were able to negotiate that if we at all, we meaning secondary manufacturers who have no timber or tenure, if we at all are, should be penalized, then we should be, I say we shouldn't be, but if we were, then we should pay it on the input not on how much value do we add, because that then further discourages further manufacturing. Unfortunately, uh, that we were successful in doing in number one, number two, number three. Unfortunately, in 2017, by the, the, the government of the day and by accident, I don't think it was by accident, on purpose, uh, they've, they penalized secondary manufacturers as well. That put another nail in the coffer of value-added manufacturing. So today, for all intents and purposes, we have no more value-added manufacturing. And, uh, you know, so, uh, uh, and obviously, as you so well know, that if you want to invest in the lumber industry, 
you must have access to fiber. For sure. If you don't have access to fiber, you're not going to invest. You know, and, and uh, that's the critical part. You know, so, so for me, um, uh, you probably remember because in 2015 we sold out our last um, anything to do with value added, and it was to a guy named John Brink. So. <laughs> Nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> nice guy, yeah. But we sold you our, our last business in Vanderhoof, and it's still running. Yeah. And, and, um, and we decided to just concentrate. I was working so much in America by then because all the work had moved there. And then I sold bid and, in 2017 and decided I was going to come back and work in the resource sector. So that's why I'm back here. Yeah, so kind of if I look back at that period, because this is always interesting. Every so often, I sit in the plane, and that was before you had yeah. one, and uh, and then we sit together, and then saying, "Hey, Brian, how are we doing?" You know, because I <laughs> yeah. wanted to buy, uh, uh, you know, Vander, who especially would, and and then a, a friend, your friend, and I respected you and saying, "What's happening? What you're doing?" And I said to you, Brian. You do the same as I do. You spend half your life at the airport. Yep. You're going to have to buy a plane. And then I said the other thing, I don't want to tell I probably said that. Not that I didn't, but uh, I, I don't want to tell you what to do. And I said, you're going to have to hire a good right-hand person because you're far too busy all over the bloody place. And, and you said, funny that you say that, John, because I hired somebody. I said, who? And you say, I can't tell you that, you know, <laughs> but, but you did and you hired a fellow by the name of Alistair Cook. And that became, I know a lot about your business, don't I? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. no, no. So in, in any event, uh, Alistair, I've known him for many years, used to be uh, a key individual in the Cant4 organization, very smart, very bright. And, uh, you know, when you sold uh, the bid group of companies uh, uh, by then, just talking back a little bit, the big group of companies that started out small, that added to it, timing again is everything. That's what I always say. I'm sure you agree with me. You bought Deltec uh, uh, company. Deltec was a Prince George organization that had a good group of people working for them that were in particular looking at how do we make mills more effective, more efficient. And this was at the time that big money had now uh, the industry started consolidating then from there on in now you were moving on the path of their mills were changing they were investing they were de disposing of certain assets and building new ones this became the right time for you to introduce new technology building and becoming very influential in terms of building ready to run kind of operations uh, another major acquisition, and correct me if I'm wrong, was uh, you know the uh, how to become be, be grading lumber become electronic if uh, in a way where the uh, very fast would lumber pass by scanners that would establish the best utilization of the wood, not in terms of va uh, volume but also in terms of value, and do that all on the fly. You were very involved in that. Yeah, so, so John, a lot to unpack in everything you just said there. First of all, Alistair Cook. Certainly today, Alistair is one of my best friends and one of the best things I ever did. And, and uh, certainly what happened to me is in 2010, my brother David 
had a brain aneurysm and a stroke. Yeah. And all of a sudden I'd lost my dad, I'd lost my brother, so Bid yeah. was, which was Brian Aiken, David was now B. Yeah. And, and so I had to do something and so the best move I made was hiring Alistair Cook. But yeah. at the same time we also bought Deltec, we also bought Comac, and then over the next five years I bought 18 companies in North America, moved to Charleston, South Carolina, and it was all about helping transform the industry, and we did an awful lot of technological change. Right. The, one of the bigger ones being the grading, the optimization. We we have got rid of literally hundreds of graders in this province with yeah. a machine called a Gradex, including on trim blocks, yeah. like what you have in Vanderhoof, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, big part of, of what I did was technological change, but all kind of Alistair being a key part of helping me without a question, and today, he is still the CEO and part owner of Bid Group and very, very key person there. Right. And and and, and Bitgope still very dominant in that particular field, especially working in the southeast, but also in other locations. Well, right? we, we don't talk I don't ever hear reported or talked about, but if there's twenty new sawmills done in North America in the last ten years, Bid Group's done seventeen of them. Yeah. Right? Like it's not a small it's huge market huge. share. Yeah. And so, so it we turned the year that I left that we had had a billion dollars in sales. Yeah. And you know, growing up in Vanderhoof with grade eleven, that's kind of pretty cool. I don't even know that I know how many zeros are in a billion. Quite a few. Yeah, it's a lot of zeros. <laughs> what, what I remember is it's a lot of bills every day. Like it's a lot of money you have to come up with every single day to yeah. pay your bills. Right? That's what I remember. But it became a billion-dollar company, unbelievable, Brian, yep. and and that is unbelievable, yep. especially if you look at it. And again, for those uh, friends that are watching this show, which there are many, uh, you know, we have as many as 150,000 watching and far beyond. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, saying, "How does this all happen?" And the question that I get asked frequently, as you do, is. You know, like I started with $25.47. Uh, I had a suitcase, I had three books, couldn't speak the language, didn't have a job, didn't know his soul, and started out as a cleanup man. And But I had a dream. I was yeah. going to build a yeah. mill, yeah. and, and that's what I was going to do. Yeah. It is the land of opportunity and, and entrepreneurship. Do not mistake that uh, for those people that are watching. It's, uh, a lot of people think it's all about uh, planning holidays and banging money to the bank. <laughs> well, it isn't. It is many sleepless nights. It is taking a risk and, uh, and, and then a little bit of luck here and there. But at the same time, uh, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. That's basically the way it works. Yep. And, uh, uh, you know, and you build this major, major mega company. Now you're still yeah, never young. once did I wake up in the morning thinking, oh, I got to go build a company, a big company. Always it was like, well, this is what I got to do at three in the morning, four in the morning. This is what I got to do today. This is, and I worked hard and you're right. Uh, hard work creates luck for sure. In my case, and luck is part of it. Timing is a big part of it. Timing. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's unbelievable. And now it's time to do number two for me. So now let's talk about that for a minute, uh, Brian. So you have Peak Resources. Yep. It's a is a lumber manufacturing company. Yep. Tell us a little bit about Peak Resources. So so I have five I call them five silos, but I have five companies that are part of BFG Group, so Brian Fair Group and and uh, Peak Renewables is built to take on projects like we've bought the Fort Nelson OSB plant, we've bought the Chetwin Pulp Mill. 
we have the finger joint plant in Cranbrook, we have the Galloway sawmill, to name a few. And every one of those projects are are made to Peak Renewable is made to build the project and run it. Some of them will be partners. For instance, in we're partners with the Rex Lumber Company in in uh, Dothan, Alabama, and and we're building a pellet. We're moving the pack bio pellet plant down there, okay. and we're we'll be running that by the end of this year. And we Peak Renewable will be a part owner of that we have the offtake agreement, and we have the and we're the managing contractor for it. So, so we're building a sawmill for Teal Jones in Plain Dealing, okay. uh, Louisiana. We're we're working on that is under the new umbrella. That's all under Peak Renewable so far. Yeah. So, so what happens again for the benefit of the people that are watching? How this stuff unfolds itself. You see what happens if you sell a company. You have an obligation. You see bedded into the agreement that within X amount of years, you cannot duplicate what you were doing. I have a non-compete till September 11th, 2023. Okay. And I'm saying that very clearly on this because I know some of the people who will be watching this that are very aware of my non-compete. Yeah. And so I can't compete on any new sawmills in that time. Because I'd always played with used equipment, I'm allowed to move. We're moving the McKenzie sawmill down to Louisiana for Teal Jones. So that's until September the 11th this year, I'm not allowed to compete on sawmills. Right. I can build pellet plants, I can build OSB. But not sawmills. Not sawmills. Which no. was the specialty of bid. It was uh, building you know. sawmills. Yeah. Yep. And, and so, but you're still very much on the way to do your things and peak resources. You, uh, you know, like, uh, and for those again that are watching us, uh, Brink also, uh, the, the, the bank group of companies has three silos. One is lumber, uh, where we do finger jointing and other things. Uh, we do it here, Vanderhoeven in Houston, intend to expand. Second one is warehousing and logistics. Uh, we are the largest warehousing and logistics company. We bought uh, interior warehousing four years ago. Since the time we have tripled it in size, we will be tripling it again in the next couple of years, and uh, both on logistics and warehousing. The third one is uh, uh, real estate, uh, 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 residential development, uh, industrial, as well as commercial development. Yeah. And that company. So those are the three silos that we have. Yeah. So ours are peak renewable. And then we own Formula in this town, a bridge building company, Peter Twaithbelt. And Paul Tiffancy is the CEO here in this town. We do $75 million this year in bridges over the province. Right. We have... Um, uh, Smart Lamb, which is cross-laminated timber. We have a... Uh, uh, that's dead one. Uh, that's in Whitefish, Montana, and Dothan, Alabama. Okay. We're the largest producer of of uh, s structural timber, mass timber in North America. CLT. Yeah. And we actually just this week got a purchase order for $55 million from Walmart. Wow. Yeah, It's a big deal. And, and I, you know, there's very few people in BC yet who understand what CLT is, but the, the BC government is actually pushing mass timber. Uh, the building right over there, the Wittick building right, right behind us here, that's corner, yeah. actually made of mass timber. Yeah. So we have the largest company in North America that does that. Wow. And so, so my silos are, you know, they don't necessarily connect to each other like your, like your warehousing doesn't. Right, right, so. right, right. But you're still growing, you're still expanding. Totally. And, and, and you're still a young fellow. Totally. <laughs> Looking yeah. at you is amazing, John. <laughs> so I'm going to turn, I, I turned 82. 
you know, and uh, so, and, and I say, what's this the number? That's you know, right. I still uh, get up early in the morning. I'm still full of excitement and passion about all the things. I love Canada. I love British Columbia, love Northern British Columbia, but I see opportunity all over. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, if we talk for a bit about the transitioning period, you know, it's obvious in listening to Kofi and watching Kofi and paying attention to the big guys. I mean, I've made a living off, you know, if you take a look in Born and Raised in Vanner, if we had three companies we did a lot of work for, Northwood, Canfor, and Slow Can, and all of a sudden that's all one company, right? Yeah. So we're very, I have been, I've made a really, really good living with Canfor, I have nothing but respect for Canfor. Yeah, I understand with quarter by quarter shareholder reporting, they have no choice but every quarter to try and make money. And I I see what they're doing in the south. I see what they're doing in Europe. And God bless them for return on investment for the shareholder. That doesn't necessarily fit for something good for Vanderhoof or something good right. for you know, McKenzie or whatever town they were right. operating in. So I think there's room to try to help transition the forest industry. I am not a believer that it's a sunset industry at all. No. I see nothing but opportunity. And I for agree. me, it's working on the biofuel side. Yeah. The, uh, that's where we are starting to spend a lot of money and time. I agree. Yeah. So pretty interesting. And, 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 and British Columbia is unique in terms of, uh, I did a program, I don't know if you've seen it or not. If not, uh, I would suggest uh, to see it. Uh, we did a, uh, a virtual podcast with a fellow in Sweden. His name is uh, Jan Hedberg. I've known him for a long time. Very involved in the forest industry in British Columbia. Comparing the two, and uh, I've probably known him for 10 or 12 years, if not longer. Yep. And, uh, and just for our guests usually watching it, it's been a very, very important program because uh, you know, Sweden wants to do the same things as we did here, are still doing it. 40, 50 years ago, they had uh, problems losing the timber in the forest. So what they did is they turned the industry around. Although the makeup is different, uh, government owns about 13%, the rest is owned by private individuals or by communities or some other form of local government. And uh, that has worked well for them. Yep. Now uh, they have spent more money and in the uh, working forest on the ground base, growing more fiber. They virtually doubled the amount of fiber they grow per hectare. We can do the same here, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. And then the second one is that in terms of, uh, they lost a lot of their production volume, no different than we did here. Now, 30, 40 years later, is that they have too much fiber, not enough production capacity. I believe the same can happen here. And then it becomes a question, okay, what does it look like? Uh, the forest is here even now. Are we good stewards? I believe we are. We can do better, but uh, we are on the way and we have to invest more in, in the fiber. Uh, you know, obviously First Nations has to become more involved and, uh, uh, and, and so does value-added manufacturing. Yeah, there, again, there's a bunch of stuff that you just said for me. Uh, first of all, First Nation, we have absolutely no choice. That, and on top of that, it's the right thing to do to work together with First Nation in our province. Just, just for me, that's been the biggest change in my last five years. I, yeah. From Fort Nelson, B.C. to Cranbrook, from the Tanaha to, to the Salto in Chatwin to all over, I'm starting to work with First Nation. And... 
on top of thinking it's the right thing to do, I'm actually having fun doing it. Yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's pretty cool. So then, then as far as transitioning from being just logging and being high high speed um, users, I believe we have to have value added. I also believe that we're not incentivated good enough to to um, do a really good job of stewardship. I think we do the maximum that we're told to do by the government. And right. as long as the system remains what the system is, the incentives aren't quite good enough to go far enough in, in for stewardship in my mind. But Is the problem underlying that we have a volume-based tenures, you know, so why invest in wood that you will not have access to later? And, and is it the difference between value-based and, and area-based tenures? Yeah, I think land-based, uh, something to do with land-based tenure. So you're more of a steward of the land and you know you might have a shot at the second or third time where right now that's not there. That's not there. Right? So I, I think that's a problem. And I, I, you know, we have to do something different. And I, I'm a pretty big believer, both in personal life and corporate life, that when you hit bottom, you can recover. And and I that would be part of my personal story. That would be part of corporate stories I know. And you know, as I watch what's happening today and last night with the Sinclair Group and and Canfor Pulp Mill and the, the different things that affect this community. Right. And I know of more that are coming on. I mean, I you know perhaps we're getting near a bottom where we can start recovering slowly. Then that's yeah. what I hope for. Yeah. And, I don't and, know any other way to do it. Now talking about that, uh, Brian. Uh, hitting bottom and then coming back. You had an experience with that 21 years ago when you said, I have to change. Yep. Tell yep. us about that. Well, start with it's 26 years ago. Okay. March 21st, 97, I quit. Um, I'm clean and sober, 26 years off heroin and cocaine and alcohol. I haven't had a beer or a glass of wine or any heroin in 26 years and yeah. I would be long dead John there's no question about that yeah and somehow um, I don't know all the things in life that happen but somehow I have been one of the fortunate ones and so I do a lot of work with those kind with that group today because of that what made you do it uh, Brian because once you so deeply engrooved there must be something that happened that say stop you know, I don't have an answer. I wish I had an answer for that. Did you just say, I don't know. One I, morning you got up and say, I'm going <laughs> to. No, it certainly didn't happen that easy. A family dragged me into a treatment center and then God, higher power. And I don't know. I, I don't have an answer for how it works. What I, what I have an answer is how it worked for me and what I do today to stay to make sure I stay sober. It's a very, very important part of my life. Matter of fact, the most important part of my life. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I went through a, a bit of the same, but not the drugs necessarily, yep. but I was drinking more than was good for yep. me. And uh, in 92, uh, July 92, you know, I stopped. Uh, I was, uh, uh, you know, on Xanax, which is, uh, you know, addictive, yep. uh, uh, prescribed. Uh, I, w I drank too much alcohol and I was smoking and uh, uh, for me it was uh, my wife dumped me, uh, my, now my wife, then my girlfriend I cared for deeply, Sharon, uh, she dumped me. Yep. And, and that kind of, you know, put the lights on for me and I say I'm going to have to stop. 
and uh, you know, and then kind of try to get her back. Uh, so, uh, you know, in one week I stopped the Xanax, the booze and the smoking all at the same time. You know what was the hardest? Xanax. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I never walked down that road. Yeah. So, but in any event. That's but I do know that you have me beat in one area. I, that smoking is the only vice I've never had. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's, Did you never smoke? No, right? never. It's so funny. I, I don't understand that because every story I know starts with smoking, but not mine. <laughs> Interesting, <clears throat> you know, but, but I always believe that it's important. The other thing that I have to kind of share with you, because you said uh, you left school when you were at grade 11. 11. Yep. And, uh, you know, so for me, uh, you know, I failed grade three in Holland, <laughs> and I failed grade seven three times. And so then they said, should we send them to the mentally challenged school, or do we get them a job? Fortunately, they got me a job. Uh, I was trained as a furniture maker in Holland. And then I kind of felt that I had failed. And, and uh, you know, the other part, but, but which were important in my life, is uh, April the 12th, 1945, and I was five years old, nearly five years old, we were liberated by the Canadian Army. And it made such an impression on me that I knew from that point forward I would go to the land of my heroes. Yeah. It was not a question of if or when, but more of when. Yeah. When could come close enough for me. That's when I was five. And then That's I so tried cool. to go when I was 18, 17. And then I was drafted in the Canadian and the Dutch Air Force. And I was there for two years. And then after that, when I was 24, I came to Canada. And I wanted to start from the bottom. I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. Not to anybody else, to me. Saying, I want to go to Canada. I'm going to build a sawmill. I'm going to go to British Columbia. I didn't want any contacts. I'm, I took $150 with me when I left uh, Schiphol, Amsterdam. And by the time I got here off the bus here at the Greyhound station two blocks up, I had $25.47. And uh, then I got a job as uh, piling lumber in, at Valwood of Canada in Quenelle, and then became a cleanup man here for Netherlands Overseas, the mill that was here. And then within a year, I was superintendent. Yeah, that's so cool. And then within two years, I was, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, then I had an opportunity to buy into a sawmill. If I would stay there for five years and manage it, I would get one third of the mill. Watson Lake Lumber. Really? I owned that for a while, too. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Isn't it? Oh, that is hilarious. I did not know that. I know the Watson Lake Mill quite well. Yeah, so from, from and I always say I was the only one that didn't go broke yeah. up to that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, I'm sure you didn't either. <laughs> no, we didn't but, go broke, but we sold it. <clears throat> yeah. So, uh, and then I owned, a, a, I was in Watson Lake. I so was that must man. have been before Bob Cattermole was up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 1967 to 72. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, and then I owned a, a motel. I was staying in a motel. I ended up buying the, the motel, but I, not because I wanted the motel, but I was trying to accumulate enough money to start a sawmill. You know, and then uh, in 1972, this is a long story, it's all in my book. I'll give you a copy of the book. Is, uh, I sold it all for uh, $1, and uh, I started over again in Prince George's forklift driver, then worked for Netherlands overseas again. I didn't know anybody there, and uh, became a, a cost accountant. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. And then sales manager. Unreal, And, and then in 1975, I started Brink, uh, Forest Products, yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, well, I, I first met you in 81 or 82, or certainly that's the first time we worked together was in, in, um, in Houston. So that's my memory. Yeah. So transitioning and what to do with, with um, the, the industry. You know, we're starting to look at residuals quite closely. Yeah. Half the log. And, and uh, whether it's chip sparks, Autostar shavings, and turning So at sha if you say residuals, yep. I think chips and sawdust and shavings. I add bark into that. I bat bark it, For me, that. the bark is a residual off the tree, too. So oh, I, just, yeah, I think everybody's different, but I yeah. use all four. Yeah. And, and for me, I've always been bothered since I was... You know, a pretty big part of, ah, I, I was the construction guy that helped Leroy Rietzma start the Pinnacle Pellet Plant in Houston. We did yeah. a lot of the work there. Yeah. And I remember thinking, how crazy is this that this plant is being made because of some government mandate in Europe? And and here we are 20-some years later, and the the uprise of pellets in the year, the the market demand for pellets every year has gone up in that 20 years. Let, let me ask you about another fellow that I remember. I, I know Ritzma, uh, Leroy, that he was quite involved yep. in Pinnacle and yep. all that kind of stuff. But I know the Swan brothers. Oh, John Swan. Yeah, uh, they started in Quanell. Yep. yep, absolutely. And then yep. I remember them starting in Prince George. Yep. And they were fighting and struggling. And, yep. and wherever they go, they, sell, they showed the bags of... Of pellets, uh, you know, and, and John Swan's awesome. I, yeah. He's the Swan that I knew, and then I knew some of the kids. But John, without a question, is the pioneer of pellets in the north, without a question. Just want to make and sure. And he still lives half time in Mexico and half time at uh, Ben Nestle. Yeah, and and just a great guy that worked hard and and is a. a but started in Quinell. Yeah, started in Quinell and a great ambassador. Kersley, yeah. he started just on the other side of Quinell. Yeah. They, they worked, uh, their plant was in Kersley on the farm there. But uh, yeah, so so we, the thing that's missing in the pellet industry is it's all European. Like, why are we not using those pellets in Canada? Why don't we have a Canada industry? And so what we're going to do is take pellets and gasify them. Now, Drax bought them all. Yeah, Drax owns every pinnacle pellet plant yeah. now, yeah. And, so and every one of those pellets is going to Europe. Yeah. How can we change that? I'm on a mission. I, okay. We, we actually have announced, uh, me and my friend Ian McGregor in, in Calgary, uh, oil and gas guy, own a company called H2N, and we're starting to work together with the First Nation to build a plant. And we believe the plant now is going to go into Edmonton area because there's a carbon sequestration pipe underneath there and there's a user base for hydrogen. But we're going to take pellets, we're going to gasify them, we're going to take hydrogen out of the, the jet stream that goes out, and then we're going to sequester the carbon. And we believe we'll be the lar largest carbon sequestration pro project in North America by far. And you, you see all this stuff about carbon sequestration and you see all these uh, electric fans they're building to suck it out of the air. And the amount of electricity is just crazy that they're using. It makes no sense to it me. It takes more energy. Way to, more. Yeah. Way more. And so we're working together every day with the provincial government and the federal government to make sure this makes sense. And that's happening. You know, today there'll be 10 people working on that. Tomorrow we're all meeting in Calgary, a bunch of guys from Victoria, Vancouver, 
Kelowna are flying to Calgary to meet with our partner there. And by March, April, we'll be making a big announcement on this. And we, we believe this can help transition the forest industry in British Columbia. And, and I, I think it's so cool because 20 years ago, Leroy and I sat there and tried to figure out how we could get the pulp mill in Prince George to switch to pellets instead of natural gas, like to try to get off fossil fuels. And right. so we, we believe we're onto something that will actually help transition the forest industry in British yeah. Columbia. And that's a big deal. So that's then the next question is where do we go from here? Now, the way, if you let me or, or allow me for a second, that I believe we are back at the same as where we were in the 60s in the sense that the, for, the, the mills that are operating now will be totally rebuilt. They will be different. How will they be different? They, but I've said, will be smaller they will have more technology, including robotics and all the other things. And this is the operative for absolutely for sure. They will, will uh, employ substantially less people. No question they, about it. They will manufacture more lumber, more technology, less, less people. No question about it. That's where the future is. Yep. And then yep. what I've said is that, okay, well, that's a problem in the sense that in British Columbia, because the timber is owned by you and me, the people. Yep. And, and if we like that or we don't like it, that's the way it is, that's the way it likely will stay. So that means that they will demand, you know, uh, a potency uh, for one or the social contract. If, if you have access to tenure or timber access, that is a privilege. With that, and, and when I say that to my friends, the, the major operators, you go, oh, don't say that. Yeah. And, then, <laughs> and then they say, uh, you know, and, and with that go certain obligations. There is no reason that we not can have mills operating in northern BC, north of Prince George. There's no reason that most of the mills that I know around it will all have to change, and that will happen in the next five to ten years. Must. And then in addition to that, I believe that the best fiber in the world grows here in the interior of British Columbia. No different than Sweden. That's true. And that then if we make just dimension lumber out of it, that's okay. But I say 50% of the fiber that is manufactured by the sawmills will go 50% of it will go up the value chain in the future and the, the bottom 25% and the top 25% will go up the value chain and if we go which we do now Kofi and, and the government of British Columbia are going to all these different places they go to China they go to India they just came back from India I think and 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 to see if they want to buy lumber then I say what kind of lumber you want them to buy Dimension lumber, they're not building houses. <laughs> yeah. What they want is either low grades or high grades. Yeah. If I look at India, China, low grades. If I look at Japan, high grades. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with anything. I think you're missing one piece, and that's the First Nation part of that. Yeah. I, I think the First Nation part in figuring out what we're doing in British Columbia is absolutely paramount. And I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg on that. I, I will be part of that transition too. For me, I'll be part of the residual transition and the first nation transition and 
I'm not sure what will happen in the sawmills. I, there's lots of questions there still. I mean, right now the majors still control a lot of the fiber. All of it. 75% of the AEC yep. is controlled yep. by yep. five companies. Yeah, absolutely. And if they control 75%, effectively, Brian, they control it all. Totally. And that's the way it is. And, and we were just going through this announcement today, actually, by government. Uh, they want to uh, stimulate value-added manufacturing. The only thing is there's no fiber available. You will not get a nickel <laughs> invested in value-added manufacturing unless there is reasonable expectation of access to fiber. Yeah, what was wrong with 16.1? Well, that's, I've been, and that is the small business program. Yeah. I was very, very involved in that yeah, so in the we. 90s as the president of yeah. BC Council yeah. Value. Yeah. So we were able to secure 20% of the annual allowable cut of uh, you know, the, what we had in the province for value-added manufacturing, the small business program, 16.1. There were some issues with it where it was abused here and there, but that could have been cleaned up. I've been working for the last year, year and a half on again saying to government, you must take 20% of the AEC and, and set it aside for value-added manufacturing. Otherwise, no one will spend a nickel. And the few that are here doing value-added manufacturing, unless they can secure fiber, they're going to say, forget it, not going to be here. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and that's kind of where we are. Yep. You know, so just want to talk about First Nations a little bit, because, but the other thing, and I like your support in that, and I'm sure you do, is that the biggest problem is that when I was involved in the College of New Caledonia, uh, for the Trades and Convention Center, and that was 25 years ago, where I g was quite involved in, in, in securing the Canadian Tire Store and turning it into the uh, Center of Trades and Technology. Yep. Yeah, yep. And, 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 and I'm very honored to have my name on that building. But I want to go further than that. I say what we have to do is, what bothers me, Brian, is that about a month ago or so, down south, uh, we have BCIT. I like BCIT, it's a huge organization. They got $270 million to further expand. And, and then industry was party to that. They, they contributed $2.5 million between Canfor, West Fraser, Weston, and some of the other ones. I have been committing a million dollars here to the center of excellence to, to develop trades and, and, and uh, you know, for the changing, not only the lumber industry, of industry in general, so that the, the biggest challenge will be in, when I gave my presentation at the College of New Caledonia, when we opened the Trades and Technology Center, I said, it will not be access to fiber, it will not be, or resources of any sort, it will not be access to uh, transportation, we have the railroad, we have the roads and the airports, it will not be any of that. It will not be invested, but it will deter people from investing, access to a skilled workforce. But I'm saying to the government, rather than investing $270 million at BCIT, we should make investments here. Uh, you know, I was very involved in the College of New Caledonia. I've been very involved from the beginning with the University of Northern British Columbia. We should have a center of technology because what will stop the development of attracting capital here is the lack of skill sets. 
And that's the first thing that we have to address. So, and the so, same applies to First Nations. Well, so, so first of all, as far as the trades group, I'm, I'm a Red Seal millwright and a Red Seal welder, so I, I know a little bit about it. Yeah. Uh, my brother sat on the ITA board. I've sat on different boards that are trades boards. And we've done 370 Red Seal tradesmen out of Andrew out of our shop. Wow. So I have an awful lot to do with it. And, and, and without a question, we have to keep growing the trades, whether it's in Dawson Creek, Prince George, Kamloops. Um, there, there's no shortage of schools. And so how that's done and making sure that works. I, I happen to be very proud of BCIT as well. I, I've, uh, we had a lot of people go through there, and it's a great trade school. And... But, I mean, whether you're at CNC or... I, I would say that both UNBC and CNC, it's great to see kids from the north staying in the north for the ones that want to. I agree. Yeah. So. And most of them do. A lot of them do, yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, you know, which is very encouraging. Yeah. I have two, two nieces in doctor school right now. Yeah. And that's so cool that they can be in the north, right? That's yeah. very cool. So that's kind of what I kind of look yeah. at and then... Uh, First Nations has to become more involved. Yep. A lot of times, uh, you know, skill sets are very, very important for them and being at, uh, finding facilities that will help them in that direction. I agree. You know, so the... Uh, anything else that comes to mind that you want to say? No, I, I just keep... I, I lately have been seeing a lot of the sunset industry stuff about the forest industry, and I don't, I don't agree with it at all. I've been through a lot of different cycles. It's a cyclical industry. Been through a lot of different cycles. I was personally involved in when, when we started putting J-bar sorters in to sawmills and it got rid of a lot of people on the green chains. I sat in towns where people said that oh, the, all the jobs are going to go away. And I'm like, well, you know what? If you don't make this change, this mill's going to go away. Exactly. You have to keep up with technology. And, no question about And that. I'm a big, big believer that there's a lot of sawmills running on 40, 50-year-old yeah. equipment right now. Yeah. It's probably time for a change. You wouldn't yeah. think of still having your car for 40 or 50 years. Yeah. Well, you might, but most people wouldn't. Yeah. Um, I, so I, I think that it's a sunrise industry, and I want to be part of the transition to take it to the next level. Huge potential. Yep, I agree. No, no question about yep. it. Ike Barber used to say we're dying in a sea of green. Yeah. That was his line. Yeah. And and I always smiled because as you fly over the north, there's sure a lot of trees still. Yeah. So it's, it's no question about we it. Just have to so figure. that means that are we doing a good job on investing in the in in the land base, the working forest? I said we're doing a very good job. We can do better. You know, and, and uh, you know, and, and there have to be changes to forest policy. The other part that I have difficulty with is the uh, the uh, deferrals of the old growth. Uh, I look at that as the big trees, uh, yeah. 11 million cubic meters uh, or yeah. 11 million hectare of old growth we yeah. have now in the province. 75% of that is protected. Yeah. But what has happened now that even trees that are 150 years old in the interior that may not be bigger yeah, than this yeah. are considered to be old growth. I think that went too far. And they have to change that to bring it back to realistic. Well, I, I keep thinking that everywhere in the world, uh, forestry is a part of the agriculture department, everywhere except Canada. Yeah. And if you think of the trees as a crop, would you ever think of leaving your wheat or your carrots or your corn in the in the ground for too long? You wouldn't do it. You'd no. never do that, no. right? So no. It's just a crop. And yeah. We should treat it as such. Excellent. 